Thank you, Vyman. All right, so it's interesting to me because a lot of the things that you read as far as commentaries about the beginning of Isaiah, specifically the first five chapters, because the first five chapters really are a a lamenting, I'm going to use that word, um, of, of, the, of the problems that were going on in Judah and Jerusalem at that time. Uh, what's interesting to me is that it's almost as though Isaiah um, is not hearing anything from God about Israel. Remember, at that time, Israel and, and Judah had split into two countries, and, and uh, effectively there were two of the tribes that were <clears throat> excuse me, in Judah, and the other ten were in Israel. It's almost as though they've kind of, kind of forgotten about them because the only thing that they really talk to here in the, really throughout the entire book is uh, Judah, and specifically uh, when it talks about a, a particular city, it talks about Jerusalem. And so when you read in the scriptures, especially in Isaiah, about Zion, he's always talking about uh, Judah, but even more specifically when he's talking about the city, he's talking about Jerusalem. And uh, so there's the mountain of Zion, there's, uh, there's all of that kind of stuff that you see as we go through um, uh, Isaiah. But these first five chapters are kind of a lamentation, really. They're, they're his, he's really sad about what's happened with them, God, that is. And, uh, you know, but when you read commentaries about this, you would think that God's up there, you know, wanting to just blow these people up. And that's not the case. The case is, is that God does not want them to have to suffer the consequences of bad behavior. I mean, if you think about it, that's really the whole point. And, you know, if you, if you think about that first chapter, if you go back to that first chapter, and he says, come, let us reason together, for though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as, uh, you know, as, as, as white as wool, ultimately. And, you know, so the idea here is that he's telling them that they don't have to continue in this activity. They don't have to continue in, in an activity which is, which is wrong. And so he goes into the next verse right after 18 in, in verse 19 there, and he says, if you'll consent and obey, he says you will, and it's interesting because uh, some, some Bibles will say consume, some say eat, but the word there is actually devour. It's achad and archem, actually. And uh, it, it's the same word that's actually used in the very next one where he says, uh, when, when you don't, uh, when, you re- when you rebel. But, but he says, if you consent... Or if you're willing, that's really what he's saying there, if you're willing and obey, or if you're willing to obey, really, is really even a better translation, I think. If you're willing to obey, you will devour the best of the land. That's a pretty good promise. But in the very next verse, he says, but if you uh, refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword which is fascinating that he uses that same word uh, in both cases. And, you know, we, we think about this idea of, of being willing or consenting or, and so forth. And the idea here is that it's without grumbling, it's without disputing. That's really the issue. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, he says that, uh, you know, do all things without grumbling and without dispute. Uh, that's Philippians 2, 12, I think it is. And maybe it's 13. And so, it might be 14. I don't know, it's somewhere in that range. Okay, but it's in Philippians chapter 2. 
And it's after he talks about the fact that we need to have this mind in us, which is like Jesus, or like Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself lower. And that's what he wants us to do. That's the idea of making him Lord. And we've talked about this a lot, and we'll continue to talk about this, that when Isaiah talks about God, he doesn't call him God. He calls him Lord, always. Or he calls him Lord God. But he does not just call him God. And because it's about relationship, as we talked about last week, if you have a relationship with somebody, you call them by name. And so this is exactly what, what he's doing yourself. So what Paul is doing in, in Philippians, when he tells us to do all things without, uh, without grumbling, without disputing, and so forth, is precisely what Isaiah is being told by the Lord to share to the, to the people of Judah. And the result of doing things right is that you will devour the best of the land. Isn't that interesting? He says the best of the land. Not, not just anything. No, no, no. You will actually be able to participate and, and eat of, of the things which are great. Whereas if you don't, if you refuse and rebel, you're going to be devoured uh, by the sword. And, and I think it's, it's very interesting that he goes on to say right after that, that, uh, that Jerusalem has become like a harlot. Um, and has what, effectively the idea is that you're selling yourself. That's what Jerusalem had done. It, it had sold itself uh, to, to, this, to this idea of living in sin. And so then he goes into this third chapter, which we looked at last week, and he gets into this whole thing about what is going to happen as they continue to falter. And the first thing that he talks about is the fact that they're going to lose their men. Their men are going to be devoured by the sword. So he made that promise. Now he basically tells them in prophetic terms what will take place. And that's exactly what happened when the Babylonians came in and took them over. Um, it was, it was uh, estimated, this is unbelievable when I read this, it is estimated that 80% of all of the men of Israel, or specifically of Judah, were killed by the Babylonians. I want you to get a, an appreciation of what we're talking about. Could you imagine, just just for a, just, 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 we'll take Martin County, 150,000 people, give or take, in Martin County. Could you imagine, and let's say half of those are men, so that's, let's say 75 or 80,000 of those are men. Could you imagine 60,000 men dying in Martin County? What that would do, just, just think about the, the dynamic of this county. If we suddenly took, 80% of the men, and boom, they were, they were all dead. I want you to kind of appreciate what that, what that would look like. In fact, it tells us in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 4, which we're going to read here in a minute, uh, that there were seven times as many women as there were men when that was all done. So, so we have this, this incredible picture of the rebellion of man and... So he says, look, when this all happens, I want you to just realize how bad this will get. This will get so bad that the only people that will be allowed to rule or be able to rule will be the children. And he says, children are going to rule you because you're not going to have any men. All the men are going to be gone. And he says, and, and the women are going to have to step in and they're going to have to start doing leadership. And, they're gonna have, and everything is going to go sideways because the men are going to be gone. 
Now, what's interesting to me is that in today's society, we see this same problem. The men haven't died. They've just left. They've just left. And it's, and it's be, because, because we, see, we see fatherlessness today at such a level, Danny, that we, we've never seen it in the United States at this kind of a level. There are parts of the communities, parts of the, of the country, where there are 90 to 95% of all kids. Uh, there, like, for example, I was reading about uh, this area where they had all the riots in East St. Louis. And it's estimated that in East St. Louis today, 90% of all of the kids are being raised without a father. It's, it's just we've... Another way of saying it would be, the men just chose to be kids they've just chose to leave okay so so but what i'm saying is is it's the same basic result as what we're seeing here does everybody see where i'm coming from and that the kids are ruling (laughs) and the kids are ruling that's exactly right so we end up with these gang violence i mean we had this situation up in fort pierce just this past week on martin luther king day which is just unbelievable to me and they can't catch anybody why because no one wants to rat on the gangs that's what that's what that's all about because that's basically what we're talking about. A bunch of, you know, a bunch of guys going in there and shooting the place up and, 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 and it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But this is, it's root cause. I'm, I'm just as serious as a heart attack about this. It's root cause is fatherlessness. That's the root cause. And we just don't want to talk about it. It's like, it's, it's like the unspeakable thing. We can't talk about well, this problem. Well, but we need to talk. We need to start talking about it. We need to start talking to men and say, look, guys, you got to get your act together. We, we as men need to start taking our position, our leadership role, not only in the church, but in the community, in our homes. It's where it begins. Because the truth of the matter is, is that if you're not a leader in your home, if you got a messed up home, well, then the next thing that happens, you're going to have a messed up, you know, church. And if you have a messed up church, you're going to have a messed up community. If you have a messed up community, you're going to have a messed up state. You have a messed up state, you're going to have a messed up country. You're going to have a messed up country, you're going to have a messed up world. And that's what we're dealing with. And so we see this, this thing over and over and over of men not doing what God wants. And so what he says to men, what he says to men in the first, first, first three chapters is consent, be willing, and obey. That's what he says to men. That's what he says to men. He doesn't say that to the women, by the way. He says that to the men. Now, that does not mean, though, that he doesn't want to talk to the women because he's going to talk to the women here in a minute, but he wants them to understand that. So we're going to pick up at verse 11 of chapter 3. We, we left off at about verse 14, but we're going to pick up at, at verse 11. As I said, there are, there are uh, a series of what I call woes that, that uh, Isaiah does here at the beginning. I believe there's seven of them. And the first one, of course, is there in verse 9 where he says, uh, Woe to them, for they brought evil on themselves. Talking to the men. This is what we do. We bring evil on ourselves. But in the, but in the midst of that, he says something very encouraging. He says in verse 10, he says, Say to the righteous that it will go well with them. So in the midst of all of this turmoil, he's, he's always coming back to the fact that, but you know what? There's hope. There's hope. Okay, but look at what he says in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, woe to the wicked 
By the way, the word wicked there in uh, Hebrew is, uh, is in the masculine form. So he's not talking about women there. He's talking about men. So it's, it's fascinating, uh, you know, how that was written. So, so basically it's saying, woe to the wicked men. And so woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him. See, so that's the, the idea there, okay? For what he deserves will be done to him. Get the pronouns here? Okay, we, we talked, that's the famous thing that we're doing now. Everybody got their pronouns? Okay, well, we got our pronouns here. He, him, okay? So he's saying, he's saying look, for what he deserves will be done to him. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. That's what he talked about earlier in the chapter. He says, oh, my people, those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the direction of your way. They confuse the direction of your way or, or of your path, literally. That the, the word there literally means path. Uh, you know, it's a, there's a great book out there uh, called Pilgrim's Progress. And I, I remember reading this book many, many years ago. I suggest everyone take, take about four hours out of your life and read this book because it's worth four hours out of your life. Trust me. That's all it would take. It's a real small book. Pilgrim's Progress. And there's this part of Pilgrim's Progress where he's going down this path and he has to make a choice, right or left. And so he looks at this and the left one looks really, really hard and difficult, but the right one looks pretty easy. So he says, ah, I think I'll just go that way. So he starts going down there. And as he's going down this path, he feels his arms being scraped, but he doesn't pay much attention to it because it's a real easy path. And he's going down. All of a sudden he realizes that the, that when he gets down, it suddenly comes to an abrupt halt. And notice I kept saying the word down, right? Did you notice that? Uh, and he realizes, oh my I took the wrong path. So now he has to turn around and he realizes that not only does he have to go back up this steep incline that he just went down, which was real easy, but everything that was scraping his arms turned out to be these thorns. And now the only way that he could get back up was he had to somehow maneuver through the thorns. And it's called the thorny way is the name of the chapter. And so often what we do is we pick what we think is the right way, but the truth of the matter is we're not paying attention. That's the, that's the key to the chapter. The key to the chapter is he wasn't paying attention because had he just looked around the first time his arm got scraped, he would have realized, oh my, this is a thorny road. What if I have to come back? But he didn't think like that. And that's kind of what happens in this situation, he says, you confuse the direction of your path. He was going down the wrong way. And so we, we do this over and over. So we see this problem with men. And he says, woe to those wicked men who go down the wrong way. And then he goes on. He says, but the Lord, I love this, the Lord arises to plead. Now, again, it comes back to this whole idea. We've talked about this uh, kind of like a, a you know, a, uh, yeah, uh, kind of a court proceeding kind of idea. We talked about that earlier in chapter one. It's the same idea here. The Lord arises to plead. And last week we talked a little bit about this. Uh, but again, in, 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 in legal proceedings during that time, it was different than today. Today, if you're in a legal proceeding, the judge sits, the defendant and the prosecutor rise, right? When he's going to give them judgment, when he's going to pass judgment. But in, the, but in this time, it was just the opposite. The person who was being charged and the person who was charging them sat 
and it was the judge that arose and gave and, and proceeded to, to tell them. The idea is, is that the person standing is in charge. And so he stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. This is the conviction. And he says, it is you who have devoured, same word as he used earlier, when he said, if you'll consent and obey, you'll devour the land. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. He's just same word again. He says, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. This is interesting because a vineyard should never be devoured, right? It should be picked. A vineyard should be picked. You should never devour the, the vineyard. If you start eating the vine, what have you done? What are your chances of getting, you know, more wine or, or more grapes the next year? I would say on a scale of one to 10, it would be zero, right? So, so the, the fact of the matter is, is that what he's talking about here is he's saying you're, de- you're actually devouring the very thing that gives you, you know, prosperity. You're devouring it. You're eating, you, you know, it's, it's like that old thing of the, you know, you never, you know, kill the, the goose that laid the golden egg, you know, because, you know, well, I'm going to get into that egg, you know, or excuse me, I'm going to get in that goose and get all the eggs. It doesn't work that way. Kill the goose that laid a golden egg, you get no more golden eggs. And that's exactly what he's saying here. You've devoured the vineyard. You have plundered the poor in his, or, in, in, or in its houses or in your houses. Uh, what do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. See, see again, it, it, there's this whole concept of even, even workers. I mean, the worst thing that an employer can ever do is treat his employees poorly. Because if you treat your employees poorly, it's just like devouring the vine. It's the same idea. You know, you, those are the people that actually get you where you're going. And, and, it's, and it's interesting. You know, if you lose all your employees, it's very hard to run a business. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's really hard, okay, uh, to run a business with no help. Uh, and and I, I, by the way, I've seen guys try. I, I, I really am serious. But, you know, you can't run a business without help. You can't run it without the people that, that, that are there to, to assist you. So this is his condemnation on the men. The men, you've left your first love. You've left what you're supposed to be doing. You have gone down the wrong path. You've messed up. You're, you, you, you're going to be devoured by the sword. Then he says this, verse 16. Moreover, I love that, moreover. In other words, this is... This is not only that, but we also got this, okay? So moreover, the Lord said, remember, he doesn't say God said, the Lord said, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Now, I want you to I want you to understand what he's talking about here. The easiest way to do this is picture a gypsy woman. That's what you need to do. Just picture a gypsy woman, you know, in her little you know little thing. And what they would do is, and by the way, they still do this in, in parts of the Middle East. It's a, it's a whole dance that they do. So it's it's so considered uh, satanic that not only is it condemned by Judaism. But the Quran has a whole section against it because it is all about the occult. 
the, the, the whole idea of the whole gypsy mentality of, you know, dressing up with the tingling, you know, uh, things on your ankles and the, and the straps that hold them together and so forth and doing these, these little what they call mincing steps. They're just little teeny steps and so forth. It's all about to, in, to induce or seduce uh, people not to the girl, but to the occult. That's really what it's all about. It's, it's fascinating. When I was reading this, I was like, man, I had no idea. I had no idea. But that's really what the whole point of it is all about. It's all about trying to do some sort of a seductive way to get them into the witchcraft, to get them into reading the tarot cards, to get them into all... You, you see where I'm coming from? And that's really the whole point. So, so, the, so the, the Quran, for example, uh, back in the 600s, that's how far back this goes, uh, back in the 600s uh, wrote against this kind of practice, but this is in the 600 BCs. So it was still going on 1,200 years after that. And by the way, it's still going on today. This whole idea of seducing people into the occult. And so, so he sees this in, in the women and he says, he says, because the daughters of Zion are proud or haughty. Some Bibles will say haughty. It's the same idea. It's just the whole idea of they're trying to bring, the, it's all about bringing the attention upon themselves. And that's what, what's happening here. Now, it's fascinating because when you lose men in leadership, then what happens is, is that there, that vacuum has to be filled. And so it's going to be filled by whoever, whoever steps up. And so we see this, this happening here. Therefore, look at verse 17. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs. Now, there are some that think that that's an illness that went on. There are some that say, no, basically what that is, is that one of the ways in which they would, uh, would uh, uh, turn somebody into a slave back in those days is that they would take a sharp sword and they would just cut your hair off with a sword. I got news for you. You cut your hair off with a sword and it's not going to be pretty. And that's the whole idea of this idea of the scabs and so forth, you know. So, uh, so it, it could be that. It could also have been a disease of some kind, but I doubt it. I think this is actually talking, remember, because this whole idea here is you're being devoured by the sword. And so he's, again, this, this, this idea of, of being brought into slavery. And by the way, that's exactly what happened to the daughters of Zion. They all ended up in slavery in the Babylonian captivity in 500 B.C. So we, we see this, this, this thing. So, so here, here he says, Therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, bring them into slavery, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. That's the idea. Just, just they, you know, Their hair will actually be cut away. He says, And in that day the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, of their headbands, of their crescent ornaments, of their dangling earrings, of their bracelets, their veils, their headdresses, their ankle chains, their sashes, their perfume, uh, their, their amulets or their charms, uh, their finger rings, their nose rings, their festal robes, their outer tunics, their cloaks, their purses, their mirrors, their, uh, their uh, undergarments, their turbans, their veils. So basically what he's saying is we're doing all of these things to adorn ourselves, to make ourselves beautiful and so forth. And while I was reading this or actually thinking about this, uh, it was really interesting because as I was reading this, my wife was actually in the other room and she was watching, she didn't remember this, but I was, I was actually reading this last week and she was, she was, uh, she was in the other room, she was watching uh, some show and they were just showing the red carpet from the Golden Globes Award 
that were on while I was studying this, and she's watching this, you know, and so forth. And I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the way they're describing these people, and I swear to you, I thought I was reading what, I was, what they were describing. It was absolutely amazing to me. I was like, what? That is too freaky. That is like too weird. And so, but, but this is what we do. We think that if we adorn ourselves in a certain way and we make ourselves look a certain way and so forth, uh, that, that we're going to enhance our beauty. And we do. There's no question. I, look, anyone that doesn't think that makeup doesn't help people has not paid attention. Okay? I mean, let's just be honest. All right? Uh, I should wear makeup. Trust me. Okay? Uh, I look much better with makeup on. Okay? And so the fact of the matter is, is that we, we, we don't understand uh, that there's nothing, or excuse me, we don't appreciate the fact there's nothing wrong with getting dressed up. There's nothing wrong with getting made up. There's nothing wrong with any of that. The problem is, is that when you're doing it for an ulterior motive, which is to bring somebody away from God, that's when there's a problem. And that's what he was saying here. He's saying, look, this is the problem. So now, I love that. Verse 24. Now, it will come about that, and now he does these insteads. And, and I want to I just read something before I get into that. I just want to read something that I thought was really interesting. I, there was a Matthew Henry commentary. I read Matthew Henry's commentaries all the time. Rarely quote them, but this is really, impar- really a, a good one. He says, in, in regard to these verses, he says, It is not material to ask what sort of ornaments people are wearing. Many of these things, if they were not fashionable, would have been ridiculed then as we might ridicule them now. The fashion may have differed, but the human nature is the same. Did you hear that? The fashion might have been different, but the human nature is the same. You know, I, I can't get over how many times we'll see somebody, uh, you know, wearing the, you know, a, a, a girl or a guy, and they've got the nose ring and the mouth ring and the lip ring, and they got the thing hanging out of their ear and all this kind of stuff. And, and those of us who are of a certain age look at that and go, gosh, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever saw. Until I think back when I was young and, and I had these, and I saw pictures of it to prove it, I had the most absurd looking haircut you ever saw in your entire life. Okay, I, I mean, I had the worst mullet that ever existed. Okay, you know, oh, and I had the weird mustache that came down like the Fu Manchu, you know, and all this... I, Seriously, I mean, you know, this is, this is what we did. But we didn't think there was any, you know, and I'm sure there were parents looking at us going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so what he's saying here is that the fashion may have differed, but the human condition is the same. The human nature is the same. And then this is what he said. He ends it by saying, putting anything ahead of the Lord displeases the Lord. I, I, when I read that, I was like, how simple. I mean, how easy a concept that anything that puts you ahead of him is something he don't want you to do because he is Lord. And, and I, I thought it was great that, that Matthew Henry used Lord, not God there. He said, putting anything ahead of the Lord displeases the Lord. And so when we, when we look at this, he gets into this thing and it, you know, it, it, you can just see they're just, it's all about me. And then he says this, he says, now it will come about that instead. And there are five insteads here. So look at the insteads. So instead of sweet perfume, there will be stink. I mean, 
Some, some Bibles actually use the word putrefication, which I think is kind of an interesting word too. Uh, my Bible just uses stink. Uh, but, but, so I looked up the word. I looked up the word. You know what the word means? Stink. Stink. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so instead of sweet perfume, there will be stinketh. <laughs> what's that? Yeah, what's that in Hebrew? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I didn't remember that. Okay, instead of a belt, this is interesting. Instead of a belt, a rope. Now, you see, well, we look at that and don't even think anything of it, but belts were used to hold their garments up and to make them look fitting and so forth and so on. Ropes were used to pull slaves. So first thing is, cuts all their hair off. Second, pulls them like slaves. Look at what he says. Instead of well-cut hair, a plucked out scalp. Same idea, right? That we just talked about before. Instead of fine clothes, this is interesting, donning of sackcloth. What is sackcloth? Anybody know? Burlap. Burlap. Yeah. What? Why? Why? Why would he say instead of fine clothes, burlap? Instead. It's. It is. It is the. It is the. It is the clothes. Clothing of last resort. That's why we use it in mourning. That's the whole idea. In scriptures, they'll say he put on his sackcloth. Yeah, because it's the clothing of last resort. It's the. It's the most uncomfortable. It is the. It is the worst kind of clothing you can wear, and that's. That's why when they're sitting shiva, the idea is that you want to uh, wear wear something which is which is not uh, pleasant. That's the point behind it. Okay, and so instead of clothing, we're a fine clothes. We're going to we're going to adorn sackcloth. And then this last one is really interesting. And branding instead of beauty. Now branding is interesting because when a person was was enslaved and they were brought into slavery, the first thing that the master would do is he would brand the person, kind of like the same way we brand cattle. They branded the slave. And the reason they did that was because if anyone was caught uh, you know, outside of the master's control, they would go and they would brand them in a very specific spot. I forget where exactly it is, but it was somewhere in the upper back is what I recall. And so it was an easy thing for somebody to, to examine. And uh, sometimes they would be branded on the back of the leg as well. So, but whatever, they would brand them in a place that was easy to examine. And so all they had to do to find out if you were a slave was they just had to just pull up your cloak and see if there was a brand there. And if there was, well, then that's, you know, you were in trouble, you know, if you were not where you're supposed to be. So the idea here is that he's going to bring them into slavery. That's the point. And you can see that, that, you know, kind of bringing out here. And as I looked at this, I said to myself... Woe. Because that's really what this is. This is truly a woe. I mean, this is one of those woe. So, woe unto the men and woe unto the women. So, there's nobody that gets away with it here. That's the point that he's trying to make. Nobody. Moreover, he says, moreover, the the daughters of Zion. And then look at what he says in verse 25. He says, your men will fall by the sword. So, he comes right back to what he originally said back in chapter 1. Your men are going to fall by the sword. Your mighty ones in battle. And look what he says about Jerusalem. He says, and her gates will lament and mourn and deserted. She will sit on the ground. Jerusalem is a fascinating place because during the entire time that it has been the capital of Judah, therefore slash Israel, which right now would be 3,000 years 
3,000 years. It, it became, it, uh, uh, David built the, uh, the first temple in Jerusalem right around 1,000 BC, maybe a little bit one way or the other, but, but right around 1,000 BC, give or take. That's 3,000 years. So you say, okay, well, 3,000 years, well, that's a long time for a place to be a capital of a country. How many years out of the 3,000 did the Jews actually rule in Jerusalem? Anybody want to guess? No, it's more than none. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's estimated that actually the Jews ruled in Jerusalem somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 years out of the last 3,000. And that's assuming you give them the last 70, by the way. That assumes that you give them since 1948, which, by the way, you could actually argue that they didn't rule it until 67. But assuming you give it to them, all, you give them those 70 years. It's somewhere around 300. They have been run out of Jerusalem quicker and more than any other single uh, group of people. Uh, and, and, you know, so people say, well, how, you know, how did they build the Dome of the Rock right on top of the temple? Well, simple. They weren't there. Simple. The Jews weren't there. They were everywhere but there. The fact is, is that uh, there was a period for almost 2,000 years, 1900 to be exact, uh, where the Jews literally were not in the Middle East, which is, which is an incredible statement in and of itself. I mean, of course, there were some. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, you know, there were no Jews in, in the Middle East at all. I'm just saying that, for the most part, there were no Jews in the Middle East. Uh, if, you, if you really, if you look at the history prior to 1948, uh, the truth is, the Middle East, especially where Israel is today, was just a big desert nobody even cared about. And it was just, it was just a place that had gone to seed, as it were. And that's exactly what he says is going to happen here. And deserted, she will sit. Deserted, she will sit. And so that's exactly what happened in this, in this prophetic thing. Now remember, there's no chapter break. So look at what he says in chapter 4. He says, he says, and for the seven women will take hold of one man in that day. So this is, this is coming back to that 80% of the men were taken out. Uh, the truth is there were seven women to every man. And look at what the women now realize. They realize all their you know, crazy activity before and all this, you know, uh, thing of, 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 you know, they were, they were so wealthy because basically the problem was is that they were so wealthy they could get away with anything. And then all of a sudden they weren't wealthy anymore. They were taken away into captivity and things were bad and they realized, oh my, we really messed up. And so look at what he says. He says, the seven women will take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread. We will wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. In other words, let us, let us marry you. Let us be called by... We'll, we'll even provide for ourselves. We just, wanted, we just don't want the reproach of, 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 of dying without ever having been in a relationship and ever being given the opportunity to bear children. And look at what... And he calls it... And they actually call it a reproach. He says, take away our reproach. And that is precisely what happened during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. What, what Nebuchadnezzar did was he would take all of the Jewish women who had brought into slavery and he would assign them to a Babylonian man so that they would create children that were no longer Jews. By the way, it is it, some people actually believe that is where the whole concept of you get your Jewish heritage from your mother rather than your father uh, actually came from because so many Jews uh, were taken, so many Jewish women were taken and were forced to uh, give birth to uh, uh, to bastard children. 
which is just an incredible thought that we have allowed ourselves to fall to this level. Look at what he says, though. But again, never leaves us without hope. Never leaves us without hope. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth will be pride, will be the pride and the adornment of the remnant or the survivors of Israel. It will come about that uh, it will come about that he who is left in Zion remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. I love that. Uh, Hadash is the is the Hebrew word for that, uh, or Hadosh, depending on. Uh, you know, the tense in which you're using it. But this idea of, of, of Hadosh is, 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 is incredible because it means to be spotless. It means to be clean. It means to be set aside for the, for the, for the glory of God. That's what, what Hadosh means. And so, so we see this, this beautiful picture that he who is left will be, will be, uh, will be Hadosh, who will be holy. And everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. Remember in uh, Revelation we talked about it being written in the Lamb's book of life? That's, this is what we're talking about. So, so up through chapter 4, verse 1, he's talking about the present time. And then he takes and flips it and says, but there's hope. Because in the end, in the end, there will be a branch of the Lord. The branch of the Lord will essentially be that person who stands up uh, for them. What's the point? The point is, is that the Lord rejects any kind of idolatry, uh, witchcraft, uh, you know. But but more importantly, adorning of yourself for just just for self glorification. God does not it, look. It says God resists the proud, right? Give grace to the humble. So 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 we 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 understand this this concept, but we also need to understand another thing, and that is that rebellion is something that God does not put up with. You know, to Saul, uh, the prophet Samuel said to Saul, he said, Saul, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness, not willing to obey. That's really what stubbornness is all about, is as iniquity and idolatry. So the question is, what is rebellion? Well, he answers it right there. He says, Saul, the reason that I'm taking away your kingdom is because you have rejected the word of the Lord. And that's the key. What, what, what Israel was doing at that time and has continued to struggle with really throughout the history of their, of their entire existence is they have rejected the word of God. Moses gave them the word of God. What type of word do you think they had then? What, what, what form was it in? They had the Torah. They, did, they had the books. Of course, they had the Torah. I mean, I was just going to say, Moses gave them the word of God. They went, eh. How much of it did they have? Oh, they had it all. They had it all. And, and what was even more incredible was they had scribes that would literally every single day completely write all of the 1,250,000 consonants that are in the Torah. Think about that for a second. Yes, ma'am. Um, when you refer to the branch of the Lord, yeah. does that mean the remnant? No, we're going to talk about that in a second. Good question, though. Okay. Branch of the Lord is the Messiah, by the way. Yeah. When is the, they said, in that day? In that day. So we're talking about the day of the Lord that's talked about in the book of the Revelation when he talks about at, at that point, at the end of the tribulation, that day of judgment when, G, when Jesus comes and sets up the millennium. 
Yes, okay. yes. So this is really actually, it, it coincides perfectly with that. And that's why we know that the branch of the Lord is also the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus. So, so we see, we see this, this, this beautiful picture. So these are all, man, these are great questions, by the way. These are, this is exactly what we should be asking. But we, we see this, this result, the result of judgment. But God says, look, I'm still going to hold my hand out to my people. I am never going to reject my people. And why is that? The book of Romans tells us this. The reason that is, is because God cannot take back his promise. It says the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. What does repentance mean? Everybody remember? It means change your mind. God can't change his mind. So the fact of the matter is the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind. Now, that does not mean that God puts up with stuff. <laughs> That's not what it means. Okay? What it means is, is that God doesn't change his mind. He's, so every time you see this judgment, you always see the hope. You always see the hope right along with it. You know, we saw that back in chapter 3. Woe to them who brought evil upon themselves. But say to the righteous that it will go well with them. Here, same thing. In that day, we're going to have a branch. And so, so we see this at this final, uh, this, this final time at the end when, when God is always going to have, ultimately, his people are going to be redeemed. But we have to understand something. And that is that God brings life via two things. God brings life via the word and his spirit. Always has, always will. Go to Ezekiel 37 and read how God raised the dry bones out of the the valley. It says that what he did, if you, well, here, go to it. Go go to it. It's right. It's just over in the next chapter, the next book. Ezekiel 37. Go to Ezekiel 37. This is the vision of the valley of the dry bones. I'm sure many of you have, have sung the song, bones, them, bones, them, dry bones, right? Okay, so, so that the hand of the Lord, it says, was upon me. He brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and sat me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them around about and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. Very many meaning very many bones, okay? Uh, on the surface of the valley and lo, they were very dry. The, the word there actually is brittle. So they were literally at the point where they were just about ready to turn into dust. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? I love that. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, I love this. Oh, Lord God, you know. Is that a great answer? You know, when you don't know something, you say, oh, Lord God, you know. (laughs) Okay, so he's saying, you know, and he says, again, he, meaning the Lord, the Lord said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to those bones, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. And then look at the end. I love the end. And I will put sinews on you. I will make your flesh grow onto your skin. And I will put breath, which is the word ruach, which means spirit. I will put a spirit 
within you that you may come alive and you will know that I am God. Does he say that? No, he doesn't say that. I am the Lord. And of course, what, what I find fascinating about this is that Paul says the very same thing to us in the book of Romans. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid, because how can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? And know you not that as many as have been baptized into his spirit have been made alive by his spirit. That's how we're made alive. That's what gives us life. Life comes through the spirit. But we first hear about the spirit. We first hear about God. We first hear about everything about the Lord through his what? Word. Word. And the Bible tells us the word was with God. The word was God. It was always in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as to the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. Who is the word of the Lord? Jesus. Jesus. So we see this, this beautiful picture of what he has laid out for us. Look, there is a result for sin. The result for sin... It tells us the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To me, I can't express enough the importance of understanding that God does not stand wanting to hurt people. In fact, in the scripture he says, do you think I find pleasure in bringing, in bringing pain to the wicked? doesn't find pleasure in that. What do you, you know, uh, there are masochists, but, they're, but, but the Lord isn't one of them. The fact of the matter is, is that God is not looking for, for us to be judged. He's looking for us to what? Obey. Obey. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for us to say yes, not no. John, I got to stop you. Yeah. Do you think that, that, that when he's putting you, when he's saying I'm going to judge or I'm going to, I don't think he's pouring out wrath on his people. I think he's just letting the darkness of the world eat you up. In fact, I would suggest... He's, uh, he's letting the world do the work. I would suggest because that... The guy asked me that question last night, and I'm like, I don't, I don't think so. He asked me a lot of good questions, and one of them was, is it, I think it's, I don't think it's impossible to know God, and I said, I think the only way you can know God is to know his word. Without the word, you can't know the, the real... Can you? I want you, you to have an inkling towards God. I, I, I want you to think about something, God, Danny. You, you fly a plane, right? Can you know how to fly the plane without the word? No, no, I'm, I'm serious. Without training, could you could you possibly fly a plane without having read what you need to read? But the first thing you do when you get on a plane, first thing you do. What's the first thing you do when you get when you sit down in the seat? Put the put the your place in your navigation. You got to put the, the. You got to put it all in, right? Yourself. Yeah, you got to put everything in. You got to. You got to. Well, it has to know where it is. Right, and you got to. You got to go through your checklist. You can't go someplace else. But don't you go through your checklist? Oh yeah. Every single thing you go through every single. And, and if there's one thing that's violated on the checklist, do you fly? No. No, of course not. But but I mean, sh- or maybe I should say, should you fly? Okay. Okay. But 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 in in fact in fact, we have that there. Now, it's not like you don't even... Here's what I find interesting about that. How long have you been flying? Over 33 or 4 years. Yeah, over 30 years. That's a long time. Yeah. 
It's a lifetime. Yeah. Really? Okay. Do you still do your checklist? Sure. Well, isn't that interesting? People tell me all the time, Don, why do you still, I mean, you're doing this, you've been reading the Bible, you've been studying the Bible, how many times you read through it, how many times you, you know, gone through it and so forth and so on. You got to know, you got to know it by now. What's the point? And I go, mm, yeah, it's like a checklist, man. I got to go through it. Got to go through it. Got to make sure I, I don't miss a point. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that it's very easy to forget stuff. And so the word of God, the word is always there. The truth is, we spend almost every minute of every waking day listening to words. Did you ever think about that? Almost every minute of every day that you're awake, and sometimes even while you're sleeping. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're hearing stuff. You're hearing the words. You're hearing words. It's, it's just a part of, of, of what we are as human beings. And so God is saying, I want you to hear my words first put my words first and then I'll put my spirit within you and I'll give you life. And that's really the essence of what he's talking about here. So when he talks about this idea that the branch of the Lord, we're going to talk more about the, uh, Susan, to, to answer your question about what is the branch of, of, of the Lord. Uh, the branch of the Lord is the Messiah, but we're going to cover more of that when we get into Isaiah 11. We get, uh, Isaiah 11 is, is really uh, where he introduces this whole concept and then explains what the branch of the Lord does. And, so, and we'll, we'll talk about Jeremiah 23, I think it is, and Jeremiah 33, and Zechariah somewhere, 6 maybe, um, maybe Zechariah 3 and 6, I can't remember. But all those different, there's like five or six places where he talks about the branch of the Lord and kind of gives us and unveils this whole picture of him uh, through all those verses. Yeah, it's definitely Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Zechariah 3, Zechariah 6. Those are the, those are the four places besides Isaiah uh, chapter 11. So, so we, we'll, we'll see that, you know, as we get into it. But this is the first distinct prophecy, I want you to hear this, this is the first distinct prophecy, messianic prophecy in Isaiah. And it is one of about 30, which you're going to really be impressed by. It's just an incredible amount of prophetic uh, messianic prophecy in this book, all the way to, of course, the crowning achievement of Isaiah 53 and so on. But Isaiah talks a lot because the hope of Israel is the Messiah. That is, the hope of the, that is the hope of the Jew. There is no other thing that is greater in their entire existence than the hope of the Messiah. And this is what's so incredible. The Messiah came and he blessed us where he allowed not only the Jew to participate, but the Gentile as well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Messiah, it tells us in Romans. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So this, this whole concept of, of Isaiah, uh, you know, coming down and, and, uh, and giving us hope is the thing I want you to hear more than any other thing. This book is not about judgment. It's about hope. That's what this, that's what this book is all about, man. It's all about hope. It is not about judgment. Sure. There's a lot of things that happen where the people are being judged. I'm not suggesting that's not the case. But this book is not about judgment. It's about hope. And we're looking for that blessed hope, it tells us, and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, even Christ Jesus. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 13. So, so I, I, I encourage each one of you to read ahead. Chapter 5 in particular, amazing chapter. 
Amazing chapter. Chapter 6, even more amazing because in chapter 6 we're going to see Isaiah's calling and how he was called out and, and how he, he says to God, Hineni, here am I. And, you know, when, when he's asked and so forth, tremendous, tremendous thing. But I think it's fascinating. He doesn't start the book with Isaiah chapter 6, which, again, you read a lot of commentaries and they go, you know, it's interesting that he does it, but they don't tell you why. I'm going to tell you why I think it's important that he did that. Uh, because he wanted, to under, he wanted Israel to, to understand that there was a reason he needed to be called. And the reason he needed to be called was because they had allowed themselves to slip into a thing where they have forgotten God. And in our men's group, we, we gave a definition of what it means to fear God. And, and that definition is to, to fear God is to take God seriously. We need to always take the things of God, the word of God, and God himself, the Lord himself, seriously. Not just, I'm a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? You know, I, no. We need to take it seriously. And there's very few people that truly take God and the Lord seriously, that have that kind of relationship with him to where they can actually call him Lord. But that's that's what we're, that's what Isaiah had. Yeah. That goes to uh, Gordon's message last week when he was saying, asking people to raise their hands, and he said, "Look, anybody who's been a Christian over ten years, he goes, you ought to be able to articulate God's view on all kinds of things: political issues, abortion, sexuality, gender, all kinds of cultural answers in, in general." Mm-hmm. And he said, basically, he challenged us. If you don't know how to answer those questions, something's radically wrong. Well, and, and I would go back to what Ray Cohen said to me 100 years ago and when I was a brand new believer. I'd been a believer for about a year, and, and I think I shared this last week. Uh, he said to me, Don, he said, I want you to never forget I'm about to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Never forget this, and I haven't. He said, Don, there's going to come a point in your life when you're going to realize that you're either one year old in the Lord 40 times over or you're 40 years old in the Lord. And the vast majority of people that you're going to meet are one year old in the Lord, however many times they've been around, however, however long they've been there. And the truth of the matter is, is as in the same way right now, uh, I know I have the experience of a, of a human being that has lived over 60 years. I also know that I have experienced uh, the growth of being a believer now uh, for nearly 50. And to me, that's what it's all about. In fact, this year I'll be a believer for 50 years. And that to me is what it's all about. I don't ever, I never wanted to be a one-year-old in the Lord 50 times over. I wanted to be a 50-year-old believer. And I really believe that just like as a 50-year-old human, not everything is a perfectly up, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's more like the stock market. <laughs> okay. But, but it is still moving in that general direction, which is towards him and growing and understanding and, and so forth. And it's because of the word of God. That's because of it. Yes, sir. You mentioned before, somebody asked you, uh, hey, haven't you read the Bible once? You know it. The more we read the Bible, the more we learn. I mean, I can't believe the things I read in the Bible I've already read, but uh, a new insight comes. Isn't that incredible? It, it is. I mean, yeah. And, and, no other book does that. Yep. It's just amazing. Yeah. As you grow, you, it's just, you, you grow more. Yeah, it's, it's, it's powerful stuff. So, anyhow, let's get out of here. Yes, sir. What, what, what would be your, what, why do you say that, uh, you know, how have you done this, this journey? How, how have you become a 50-year believer? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Uh, 
through. Oh, I can tell you exactly. I can tell you exactly. What, what was the key? I mean, what, what, what? Yeah, exactly. Never quit. Amen. That's how. It's one step to another step to another step. Occasionally I get knocked down, get back up. Another step, another step, get knocked down. Sometimes I've been knocked down big time. And sometimes the knockdowns big times are actually the best times for growth. Truth be known. I find, and one of the things I, I love to quote from Martin Luther King, he said this. He said, um, there is prestige on the mountaintop, but there's growth in the valley. Don't blame God for the problems in your life. That's right. So the fact of the matter is, is like, like he said, you know, anybody, you know, uh, anybody who thinks they're on the top is no longer growing. That's basically what the point is. You, you know, you got to come through the valley occasionally. You got to get knocked down. And, and that's what it's all about. But it's about not quitting. It's about tenacity. Truly. It's about tenacity. And it's about holding him as Lord. Having a relationship with God as Lord is, is absolutely essential. And if we have that kind of relationship, Danny, if we have that kind of, of seriousness about him, then that's when you grow. But if you don't pay attention to your crops, they're not going to grow. And the same with your relationship with God. Don't pay attention to the relationship. It's not going to grow. And so we do we do we do we stagnate from occasion to occasion? Absolutely. Do we do we stumble on occasion? Absolutely. That's all part of the growth. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and I'm not and I'm not and I'm not ashamed to say mine has never been a straight uphill deal. It's not. Just the opposite. It's like the stock market. I always tell everybody, you know, and every and every and every so often, you know, there's a 1929, you know, and you go, wow, you know. But but at the end of the day, you don't quit. You keep on going, one step in front of the other. Keep him, you know, keep him there. That's that's really, I think, the key. All right. Hey, let's get out of here. Thank you, Lord, for uh, watching over our time. Thank you for this great discussion. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in His name. Give us a wonderful, wonderful day today. Give us a great sermon from from our pastor uh, that we can just uh, be be happy to uh, participate in. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray that you would bless us in His name. Amen.